0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago we are social emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out bring us together in large groups put money on the line and anything could happen this is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success this week, I'm joined by two guests, Sonny Garg and Samir Waggle. These two gentlemen were both successful executives who, by all standards, had achieved the American dream, only to feel completely unfulfilled. That led them on the path to find their own passions and to help others do that same inner work. In 2015, Sunny helped launch the energy division for Uptake Technologies. Uptake was named in 2019 the number three most promising AI company by Forbes. Prior to Uptake, he was an executive committee member at Exelon and served as chief information officer and chief innovation officer for the company. He's also an active nonprofit board member serving on the boards of Invisible Institute and the Institute for Nonviolent Chicago, as well as several others. Samir is currently the founder of 1111 Partners, a strategic talent and mapping firm that helps companies through all five elements of the employee life cycle. He has built his company on a lot of the principles that we talk about in this episode, and he helps his clients implement those same principles to get the most out of their people. Prior to 1111, he spent 20 years developing and growing brands in the retail food sector, including being the CEO of Protein Bar, the COO of Andre Boudin Bakeries, the expansion leader for Chipotle, and the head of operations for McDonald's India. Wherever you are in your career, there is definitely something that you can glean from this episode because it's all about doing an assessment on where you are, who you are, and making sure that you're aligned with the work that you're doing. And this type of conversation is not happening in the workplace enough. It's happening more and more, which is great to see, but I, I think everybody can really take a lot away from both Sonny and Samir. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation together. And we are live with Samir and Sunny, Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm excited to get into this. Uh, you two are, on paper, very successful business leaders, and yet, from from our exchanges, understand that you've each kind of gone through your own transition about how you think about business and leadership and and your careers, even after achieving all that success. So I, I'm, I'm interested to get into this and and see kind of maybe where you came from and, and where this is going to go. To start out, though, it'd be good if you just sort of level set, like how did you two meet and how did you two come to be interested in career development topics?
1: Sure. So both of us were graduates from University of Chicago Business School, and we just had, we had mutual friends. And both of us, in talking to folks at the business school, particularly at the Rastandi Center, so the Rastandi Center is the center focused on social enterprises, we we were talking to folks over there, and eventually they both said, you guys are talking about similar things. You're talking about how do you sort of create purpose in your life um, beyond just going to business school and taking the boxes and getting a good job? How do you actually find purpose through your work? And they're like, you guys should just meet. And that was it. And that was maybe what about a year ago,
0: maybe a little less, Samir?
2: Yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah. And so, so you weren't classmates there then? No. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. And so you, you were separately kind of operating in these different worlds and, and happened to have this conversation with the same person and they brought you together.
1: Yeah, basically. And, you know, and this idea of both are, I think th- this person, Recognized, but both of us had been on a, a journey that was, you know, very transformative in terms of what we wanted out of work in our lives, and we were also very committed to the idea of how do we take our journey and create some type of opportunity to, to talk to business school students uh, as they're entering, you know, the beginning of their career, and to help them think about their career and the work they want to do differently than maybe they, the, the traditional just, hey, I'm going to get a paycheck or I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to go this route. But like, how does it align with their values and who they want to be? So
2: basically, we were pestering the same people with similar ideas. And <laughs> they finally said, hey, maybe you two should talk. Stop
0: talking to us. Talk to each other. <laughs> Talk to each other. There you go. And just to be clear for anybody who's listening here, the first voice is Sunny. The second voice is Samir. So we'll, we'll hopefully through the back and forth, you'll kind of get who's who without having to see the video of this. But what made you guys interested in these deeper topics anyway? I mean, you've... You've both had successful careers. You've lived the American dream to some extent and, and gotten what it is that we're all supposed to want to get. What made you curious about the topic of purpose in a career and, and want to look deeper at this stuff?
2: I think, O'Brien, you calling it the American dream is is exactly it. I grew up in the, in the Bay Area of California. I'm first generation. My parents came over and came over definitely because They wanted their children to have a better shot at a life. Um, And so I grew up with this belief that the American dream was highly correlated to a successful career. And what happened was, and so I followed that path. It's a pretty textbook path, frankly. Accounting, consulting, business school, blah, 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 work your way up the ranks. And um, in my last kind of real corporate position, we brought in a facilitator. And that facilitator was asked a question, which was a really, which was a normal question, like, how is this work going to help us reach our financial goals? And she said, well, the first thing I would ask is, how happy do you want to be? And then she just kept talking. And, you know, I'm 51. I've had a couple of years. And no one has ever said to me that the answer to my quarterly results was how happy I wanted to be. And so I just said, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And she said, great question, Samir. What if being happy meant that you had to look at all the conversations you have stuck here? And she pointed at her throat. You had to go to those people and actually have those conversations. And what if being happy meant you had to look at all of the broken relationships in your life and you had to either truly commit to fixing them or consciously end them? And what if being happy meant that you had to look at all of your habits and the ones that don't serve you, you had to stop. And it was, it was a light switch moment for me because on paper, as Sonny had said, I had ticked a lot of the boxes. And the one thing I knew was I wasn't happy. And that just made me pause and maybe look and go, wait a minute, if I've ticked the boxes, and what I realized was the American dream was somebody's dream and it was perfect for them. That didn't necessarily, meant it was my dream. And that's what started me in my journey to look and go, well, what, what really would, what would inspire me?
0: Could, could you paint a little bit of a picture for where you were at the time that you heard that message and, and just like what was going on in your life that made that resonate so deeply?
2: Yeah. At the time, I think it was a three-year-old son we had adopted. Uh, I was married to an incredibly talented uh, woman. Uh, I had a great job, a house in the right part of town. And so I had, I had all of those things. And I was still waking up every morning and being functional, but not necessarily full of joy. And at some point, you kind of look up and go, wait a minute, what else is there? And I could also see the part of me, and this has been proven through research, so it just proves that I am a human, that no matter what I had, I always believed it was. I was about 15% away from where happiness really was. So I, I, I was that horse with the carrot dangling in front of me.
0: Just on the other side of the next hill, just, just on, the on the other, other side, side of the next promotion, just on the other side of the next job, that that type of thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Sonny, did you have a similar spiritual awakening? Yeah,
1: very similar. You know, I, at the time, was at a Fortune 100 company. I was in the C-suite and was named to the executive committee. Um, so at the time, let's say I'm about 40, 45 years old um, and had a pretty rapid rise. I started, you know, 10 years before that at a junior manager level. And then all of a sudden, you know, within 10 years, I was on the executive committee. I was out to lunch with a friend of mine and he, he was saying, you know, boy, you must be really pretty excited that you're on the executive committee. And, and just I just blurted it out. I didn't even filter it. I said, yeah, my life sucks. And he's like, what do you mean your life sucks? He goes, you are, you've sort of, you you know, going back to the idea of American dream, it's similar to Samir sort of came from, my parents were, you know, had emigrated from India, had come out of poverty. My, you know, my grandfather was the guy who weighed your packages on, on the trains during the British empire, you know, so didn't really come from much, you know. And so this idea of like success was, was one that was defined by commercial, you know, like financial success and going to the right schools and all that sort of stuff. And this buddy of mine, his name's Tim, he looked at me and he said, he said it in a really simple way. He said, what are you chasing and why? And, you know, he and I had been through this really cool program at the Aspen Institute called the Crown Fellowship where you spend, you know, a number of weeks in Aspen thinking about what a good life is and and even having read all those books and having studied, it was his simple way of saying, what are you chasing and why? That was just like, whoa, what am I chasing? And, you know, as I sort of started digging into that, I realized that so much of what I was chasing wasn't something that I had defined. It was sort of like you're saying, it was carrots that other people were putting in front of me. And I had just gotten really good at, at grabbing that carrot, you know, and knowing how to work the system to get to the next thing. But... But it really wasn't intrinsic. It was so much more external. And I also realized I'd become so addicted to, to sort of external validation that I couldn't, you know, that I'm named to the executive committee and the next thing's like, okay, well, how do I get to the next level? Like, there's no joy. There's no sort of, you know, it's just like, now somebody else needs to tell me I'm smart and, you know, and capable. And that was sort of the, the cycle that led me to lead, you know, just sort, sort of like with Samir, led me to leave this really, what would seem on paper, a very prestigious position,
0: and go do something completely different. So, so that caused you to leave, which is a good question. So, what happened next? Where did you each take that feeling?
1: So, you know, just to follow, I I spent a num- There was an interesting exercise that I had learned at Aspen, where you break your life your life into four dimensions: work, family, self, community. And you ask yourself, what do you want in each one of those? And then ask yourself the why question. And so it was it was—it was quite revealing when I went through that. I, I, so I spent two years before I left because what I didn't want to do was a rebound marriage. I didn't want to just, because at that point, everything looks good. You're like, oh my God, that looks good. <laughs> and I didn't want to jump too quickly. I wanted to make sure that I was being thoughtful about it. So I went through that exercise and it was interesting, right? Because it was like, oh, well, what do I want out of work? Well, I want to be CEO. Well, why? Well, cause isn't that what I'm supposed to be, you know? And then I'm like, okay, well, I don't want, I, I can't imagine being on an analyst call. Like that would be the worst thing for any publicly traded company to have me on an analyst call. Cause I'd be like, you're a bunch of idiots. Why are you asking me that stupid question? Right. So I realized like I'm just in the wrong place. And when I went in the community side, I'm like, well, what do I want in the community? Well, I want to be on the board of the Lyric Opera or I want to be on the board of the Art Institute. Well, why? Well, because anybody important in Chicago is on those boards. I'm thinking, that's the last thing I want to do is spend the evening at the opera. Like, I can't imagine anything worse in my life. So, you know, I had realized like the disconnects that were there in terms of the what and the why, there were no, there were no whys that were justifying the what's. And so I just spent a lot of time talking to friends and really trying to explore through different tools. What was it that would bring joy? What was it that, what, what type of environment did I want to work in? That would really allow me to, 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 I think, be aligned with who I wanted to be. And, and just quickly, you know, there were five criteria. I wanted to be in a disruptive space simply because I don't like rules. I wanted to be with a team that wanted to win in that space because I like winning. I wanted to be in a space that if we did something, it would be positive for society. I wanted to be with people who believed in values-based leadership, and I wanted flexibility so I could be with my kids. You know, and so then it was defining an environment that I wanted to be in versus a role that I wanted. And that was a huge shift in how I thought about my career.
0: Samir, I want to hear your story in a second, but I got one more question for Sonny, because I've tried to stick my foot into this and, and do some of this work as well and, and really think about what I want out of my career. And, and I found that it can be very hard to let go of the thing you think you should want, because the the next big client could be there because, you know, it's going to affect your so- social status in some way. There's a, there's always like some reason that's drawing you to want that thing in the first place. What was the process like for you to be able to let go of that stuff and redefine on those five values that you just talked about?
1: It was really, really hard. And, you know, in going through the process, there's a lot of things you start realizing decisions you've made that you know, that you're just, you're you're a little bit ashamed about, you know, you know, like I compromise, I would say my integrity sometimes at work in order to have my career continue to flourish, right? There may be ways that I looked at things or ignored things that I knew were inappropriate. So I think, you know, it's it's almost like a, it's almost like a relationship that, you know, you have to kind of go in and be willing to do the heavy lifting to say, if it's a personal relationship, why am I in this dysfunctional relationship? And it is a two-way relationship. And so going through that was pretty, I revealed things about myself that I didn't
0: necessarily like. Do you have an example of one of those things that was really hard to let go?
1: To let go of? The prestige. I'm a C-suite guy in a Fortune 100 company. That's, you know, that's hard. And I've sort of conditioned myself to have people tell me how smart I am and how great I am all the time, right? Right to sort of leave that position, the the social status that came with the title versus the the status that came with me as a person,
0: I had sort of conflated in my mind. You wind up having to tell yourself an entirely different story about who you are, which can be very, very challenging.
1: Totally. And who I told people I was. Like, you know, know, like in the family dimension, I'd said, I'm a great dad, but I was never home. You know, I was Mm. on the road four or five days a week. You know, I'd lost touch. I commuted to... Philadelphia for two years for, to run one of the big divisions of the company. And, you know, there was a huge disconnect between that and the dad that I was. And what was interesting is as I went through the process of looking for opportunities across those five criteria, the two that I kept finding I would sacrifice most were values-based leaders and time with my family. And I would be like, I keep coming back to like, yeah, the guy's an, the guy's an asshole, but I, it's a really cool job right? Yeah. Like, well, I've done that my whole career. I'm tired of that. Or I'll be on the road and I'll figure out how to make up quality time with my kids, right? And so for me, it was like the recognizing how I sacrificed things that I said to myself were important, but hadn't really been living and how hard it was to A, to admit that, and then how hard it was to find an opportunity that was going to be true to those.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Samir, curious what what your story looked like, what that next step was after having that realization.
2: Yeah, so Sunny, as you can tell, is a little bit more of a thinker than I am, and uh, at, at the time we were working with the Conscious Leadership Group, and so with Jim Dethmer and Diana Chapman, and it was a similar type of experience where you look up and you go, "This doesn't align with me." And so at that point, I started to look at my life along those three items, or the conversations I'm not having, where are my broken relationships, what are my habits that, that don't serve me, and I have a tendency to just sometimes just move. And so I realized, for example, that I was in a marriage, and we had fallen out of love. And she's an amazing person, so this is in no way a criticism of her. It's very much on this side of the table. Um, and so we decided to get divorced. And then about four months later, I realized that the work I was doing just didn't inspire me anymore. Nothing wrong with the company, great company, great owners, just wasn't me anymore. And so I quit. And so give you some context, right? I've I've told you about immigrant parents, beautiful world, and all of a sudden, over six months, they find out their son is both getting divorced and now no longer has a job. And so... At this point, I'm pretty sure they think I'm gonna do my version of Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas. And I'm going, I'm like, no, I just I just need to take a second and figure things out. They're having people watch you,
0: your house. They're yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> They're like random people walking up and, and asking me how I'm doing today.
1: <laughs> They're going to my guess is similar, they went to their pundit and asked they them for today. insight.
2: <laughs> what is going on? What
1: is going on with their <laughs>
2: with his child. Are you sure he's ours? And and it actually was necessary for me. So what I ended up, what I ended up doing was, was really kind of taking a look and working with, with, with different modalities, Tim Kelly's two purpose work, some others, and really just looking going, who do I want to be? And I think you're the point you, you made O'Brien about it is really hard to let go of the things you currently have. There's a concept we talked about, which is willingness versus wanting. And a lot of times we want things, but we're not necessarily willing to go get it. And so, for example, for me, I really want to be about 20 pounds lighter. I mean, and I really, really do. And I can tell you all the different ways I go about trying to make that happen. And the reality is, is that what willingness requires is to step into the unknown. And that is the hard thing for so many of us. Because if I knew exactly how it was going to turn out, I would do it. This wouldn't be a conversation. The thing is, is for example, when I decided to let go of these things and Sonny decided to let go of these things, you don't know what's going to happen. I can honestly tell you, there were days where I was convinced I was going to end up in Humboldt Park in a garden apartment with nothing but a bottle of vodka as my best friend. Like, that, like that's where my mind goes. Like this is our life now. We used to have all of this. And now it's just you looking out of a basement window. That has not happened, but that's where the mind goes. And that's just natural. So I think what you're saying makes perfect sense around that.
0: Shout out to everybody living in garden apartments. who are trying to work their way out. There you go. Curious to get your thought on one element of this, because we read about these stories a lot or or hear people talk about this, where they achieve success and then had this epiphany and then totally changed their career trajectory. But Sonny, you're still in a leadership role. Samir, you're a CEO and founder of another organization. So you're both still in these leadership roles. I feel like often that the corporate side of this gets demonized, like it's the corporation's fault and you have to totally reinvent your life and move to Bali and become a yoga instructor. And like, that's how you're going to find happiness. But I'd be curious if you could just talk to how you think about what really creates that differential, not phrasing this very well, but like where's the disconnect and how can you still achieve some, you know, stereotypical corporate success, but make it more meaningful for yourself?
2: So let's start with an example. So Michael Jordan, for example, at one point started playing baseball, right? He was actually okay at baseball. Now, he had a strike zone that was roughly the same as my height, so that had to be tricky for him. But he was still a very reasonable baseball player. The thing is, is when he started, when he played basketball, he was divine. And so what we talk about isn't isn't an idea that corporations are good or bad. They define the world. The way we both look at it and and what, what we're kind of striving to point out is As individuals, we have the ability to create our reality. And so this is more for us a concept of of moving in alignment with who you are. So if you are truly divine on the basketball court, and you can be great at baseball, you can do baseball, but wouldn't you rather do basketball? And so if you're in the corporate world, that's wonderful. That is truly wonderful. Wonderful. And the question to ask is, where are you at this intersection? There's a concept called Ikigai, and it's a Japanese concept that talks about reason for being. And what it talks about is this idea of what the world needs, what you are good at, and what is your purpose. And if you can be at that intersection, it doesn't matter where you are doing it, you'll probably find that you are in this place of just
0: satisfaction. Can you say those three again?
2: So what are you passionate about? What are you good at? And what the world needs? And so that intersection is, is is really where you find purpose, for example.
0: Is that the work then that you did to try to identify that stuff for yourself?
2: Yes. Uh, there's a couple. As I said, I was looking at a couple of things. There's another person named Gay Andrix who wrote The Big Leap. And he has uh, what he calls his zones of work. And he calls them... Incompetent, competent, excellent, and genius. You can guess incompetent. Competent is something you can do, but you have really no passion for. Excellent is something you do better than most others. And that's where most of us get stuck to, as both Sunny and I said, there's a lot of external validation. Hey, you are really, really good at this. You get promoted, you're recognized. The thing is, is you feel that from an energetic perspective, It's depleting. You're tired. Moving, making that jump into genius in your zone of genius is this place where you have as much energy at 6 p.m. as you did at 6 a.m. The work is actually fulfilling you. And so a lot of what I was in pursuit of is what will help me break through from excellence to this area of genius. That was the journey, but still the journey. It's a journey, right? There's no destination
1: yeah and I, I might just pick up on that o'brien in terms of i think what the fourth dimension that is often included in the ikigai is in what can you get paid for <laughs> so i'm serious i mean like if you look yeah. you know it is that fourth dimension because at the end of the day depending on what you're solving for on that that dimension of financial stability can be different but i think the realization for me was that the world has been organized in a way that's that's particularly if you're following a decent path. It sort of serves you up. Here's what the world needs and here's what you can get paid for, right? It needs management consultants. It needs investment bankers, right? And if, particularly if you're in business school, it's telling you that's what it needs. And I think what what Samir and I sort of went through and what we're trying to also think about with the students is as you, it, that's not a bad thing, but as you're experiencing those, be much more intentional to begin to understand what are you really passionate about? And what are you really good at? Right? Instead of I'm competent at this, I'm great at spreadsheets. Like there were lots of things that I was good at, but not necessarily things I, were pa- I was passionate about. And so if you're able to I, identify those things throughout your career, then you can almost flip the model. Then you start saying, oh, I'm really good at this. And I'm passionate about these things. Now, what does the world need? What might I get paid for that isn't obvious? and is isn't showing up at my doorstep. And particularly if you're coming from a school like Booth, or you have a lot of opportunity to define that. And part of what we're trying to tell ourselves and students is think about that as, you know, as as, as an opportunity versus being afraid of it. Versus taking a step outside how the world is organized to solve a problem and pay you. Think about, can you construct that for yourself? But in order to do that, you have to have a level of self-awareness on those passions and on what you're good at. And I think that just comes with time as well. So what you'll see with both Samir and I is and we've created worlds for ourselves. we said, this is what we're good at. This is what we're, we're passionate about. Now, how do I go? And then we're able to say, Oh, well actually
0: the world needs it here. And then there's somebody, hopefully somebody willing to pay for that. Right. Yeah. the The passion topic is an interesting one because it can be, it shouldn't be, but it can be kind of polarizing where you hear people say, follow your passions and you hear other people say, that's ridiculous. Go out and you know work hard and, and earn it and you'll figure out your passions along the way. How do you advise younger people, especially younger in their career or thinking about redefining their career, to think about passion and to go out and identify what their passions actually are?
1: So it's a great question and I, I don't know if the way that I try to think about it is there are other dimensions of your life that you can experience your passion in right so for example so that ikigai is one sort of framework within the world of work right but I'm really passionate about civil rights and I'm really passionate about you know about racial and and inequities right? If I can find a way to build that into what I do and work, that's great. But first of all, it's just understanding that those are my passions. And a lot of times, I think we we tend to sort of ignore what those are, because we're trying to fit into what the world is organized as, right? And what's rewarding us. But, you know, by coming to understand, like, my passions are around civil rights, racial inequity, and social entrepreneurs. Great. My career may not be where I get that satisfaction to address that passion but there are other dimensions of my life there are dimensions when it comes to the nonprofits I might serve on right the, the friends that I have the topics I tend to you know the circles that I might be the people I vote for right so I think the passion piece is an essential element that we need to be aware of and continuously defining what is that because we learn a lot about ourselves whether that passion is you're able to manifest, you know, in your work, a way that addresses that passion will be different for different people. Does that make sense? O'Brien? it
0: it does for sure. One of the things that I think about, and I've thought about this just with my own life and career is to explore the interests and see which ones become passions. And I, I like when I talk to people who are now younger than I am, trying to start their careers, it's like, you don't need to have it all figured out right at the beginning. You probably won't have it figured out by the end. But just to jump in and start doing things that interest you, whether they pay you or are just personal hobbies or passions or, or things like that, just do as much that you find somewhat interesting and see which ones stick around and which ones don't. And then, and then look at those. I like Simon Sinek's, you know, start with why. And his big lesson is once you've accumulated enough experience, then you can look back and see what the core principles are that drew you to those things. You know, it's not civil rights, it's fairness and equality and everybody having a chance, right? So identifying what those principles are and then turning back around to a forward-looking modality and saying, okay, now how do I build the rest of my life to be purposefully seeking those things out? So th- that's sort of how I've interpreted that just with my own experience.
2: Well, Brian, the thing you said, I, I think the thing you're pointing out, which is, which feel, resonates deeply with me is often we think of things like passion and purpose as objects. Like it's something that I can put down and go, you know, look at my purpose. It looks so great with my couch. Right? When really all of this is a journey. And that mindset shift to this is a journey, and what I am looking for experiences leads to what you are talking about. So if I think if I think of the world as I have a passion and I need to find it, I think that's almost a guaranteed way to, to give yourself some suffering. If, like you're saying, it is, hey, here are some things that interest me, and let me go on this journey, let me explore. And more things will come up and I will learn more about myself and more things will come up and I will learn what I enjoy and what I do not. And that's really the point. Then I think this whole idea of what do I do in the world just becomes a lot more enjoyable.
0: So one thing I really like about that is that it's really easy for following your passion to become the thing you think you should do as as you talked about you know when you were coming up it was go to business school get good grades work your way up the ladder become the ceo get on the executive board right like those are the things that you were told that you should want and right now there's a, a generation out there that thinks that they should want this passion this thing they need to obtain this passion and the reality is that if you're searching for it with that lens you're going to be just as fu- unfulfilled As everything, you know, as we're talking about right now. That's it. I think that's really an interesting insight. I agree. Yeah. Flipping a little bit. This is very personal. Let's talk about leadership for a second. You're in a leadership position in a corporation. How do you encourage some of this soul searching and exploration within your employee base who, Maybe their passions lie somewhere else outside of your company. And so it it seems like, one, there's a risk that this is just a little too woo-woo to bring into the corporate world as a, as a leader. And two, that if you do, you might have a mutiny on your hands. So h- how do you think about this, your leaders in your organizations, how do you bring this into your teams?
1: I'm going to punt to Samir on this one because this, <laughs> this is his sweet spot.
2: Well done, Sonny. Well done. Here's how I went about doing it. There's a couple of things. One is the employee life cycle starts with recruitment. And so if this is how you want to live your life, and this is the kind of organization you want to build, my encouragement would be when you are looking for people, look for people and sense whether they are on mission or not. Start there. And we've all had that experience of working with that person on your team who's incredibly skilled at what they do and loves doing it. And whenever you look at your calendar and you see a meeting with that person, I imagine most of us go like, this will be fun. And so part of it is, so, so for me, start at the beginning. Start, you know, there's a five five stages of employee life cycle. and every single stage, are you really emulating or are you really demonstrating, and looking for these values.
0: Wait, let me, before we go to the second one, I'm just curious about the recruiting because what do those recruiting conversations look like and how might they be different than a traditional recruiting conversation?
2: Yeah, so so without getting too technical, for example, one of the things we ask as we are, as we are doing work for our clients is, and, and we go at a much deeper level. We have We have a person on our team who is very much trained in this work. But a simple question is, when you were nine years old, who did you want to be when you grew up? Are you aligned with what that is? I also ask, what are your hobbies? And often is for example, when, when you are recruiting someone, if you're talking about the, the role of director of finance and they are just telling you, they're just giving it to you, and then you ask them, well, what do you do in your spare time? They go, oh, I am a Bears fan. I've been a Bears fan since I was born. We go back six generations and you will see individuals truly light up when they are talking about something that really resonates with their core. By the way, that doesn't mean this person should go work for the bears, but it gives you a good idea of what this person looks like when they are really in their flow. So that's a couple of quick examples on on my side. That's great.
0: And then, sorry, I'd cut you off moving into the other elements of the employee life cycle.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, as you start to move in the others beyond onboarding, same type of thing. As, as you're looking at onboarding, what can we do to really see, are these people in flow, if you will, with what they're doing? And then development and retention, very much, this, it's very critical, is to look at people and say, I know you, this is really where you feel like you are singing. And what's the role in our organization that allows you to really play there? And and many of us are fortunate. We work for large organizations, um, which means there's a lot of opportunity. So this isn't necessarily a call to, to quit your job and go look for something different. Very often, there are opportunities right within your backyard to go, this is closer. Again, not an object, not a destination, but this is closer to what I want to explore next. And then you're looking for people who want to do the same thing and come my way and onto my team because what we do resonates with them.
0: Sonia, I know you punted this question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna push it back to you a little bit because it's a little easy for somebody who's really lit up about this and thinks about this from a corporate setting to talk about leadership the way that Samir just did. But I'm curious from you, who's also done a lot of this work yourself, and you're also in a leadership position. How do you have these conversations at work with your with your teammates? it's interesting because I'm going to address it from like two different types of environments,
1: right? One was the corporate environment, fortune hundred company. You know, I had, when I was running it, I had 1300 people in, in, you know, in that part of the business, right? That uptake, it's a smaller sort of uh, early stage company. And, and it's not as sort of process oriented yet. We're still trying to get to that place. But I think part of part of what I recognized was that this idea of there's this great guy named Joseph Campbell who wrote this book called The Power of Myth. And he said, you know, vital people vitalize. And and I think part of this comes back to as a leader. Well, the first thing that I came back to was why do you want to be a leader? You may not, we're all told we're supposed to lead. That might not be what you want to do, right? So how do you even help people understand, do they want to be in a leadership position? And unfortunately, the way that we've orchestrated careers is that your title, your pay continues to grow if you continue to grow your leadership. And But that's not necessarily the right path for everybody, right? So just having people understand, like, do I want to be a leader? When you get into the, the leadership side, I think it's it's incumbent for you to really be focused on the outcomes for your the people who work for you which is a different mentality, right? Versus trying to just plug and play people to solve for key performance indicators. I fundamentally believe the great leaders of the future and the great leaders today are really helping their employees with this discovery process. You know, so we put in place, you know, at Exelon, where I was before, tools that help people start understanding, is this the right spot for me? You know, because you don't want somebody to be in a bad relationship, which is what it can be at work right? And you see this all the time. I see this all the time. People who are in the wrong place. And what happens when you're in a bad relationship many times is you start thinking it's about you. You start thinking, oh, I'm the problem, right? And then you try harder. And the person you're trying harder with says, now you're really annoying me, right? And so it gets really, you know, but your self-esteem starts suffering. And it's because you're just in the wrong relationship. It's sort of like what Samir was saying about his company or for me with Exelon, it wasn't that these were bad places. It was just I was in the wrong relationship. And so starting to think about your work as a relationship, you and the organization can change the way you start thinking about whether you're happy in that relationship. Right. And at least what I found is because work is such a different, we, we, the expectations we put around happiness and what we expect from work can be very different than in a personal relationship. Like, you know, at work, you're like, people will scream or people who will be mean and you're like what i you know or my favorite is always what kind of mood are they in today you know you come into the office and you're talking to you could talk to the administrative assistant for your boss and you're like hey, what kind of mood is o'brien in and can you imagine like being married to somebody and every morning be like oh i wonder what kind of mood they're in you know that'd be exhausting but we put ourselves in that same position so i think part of this is helping employees just begin to understand like where can they be their best self and I'm perfectly comfortable if that's not in my department or if that's not in my company. Because you're not going to get the most out of them and you're not going to get, and that's why you have, you know, you look at the polls, the studies, what, 30% of people are engaged at work, you know, 50% are sort of like unengaged and 20% are, are actively unengaged. I don't even know what that means to be actively unengaged. So I think you'll probably have better outcomes if people are more aligned with themselves and the work they're doing. And I think that's a big shift in how companies think about things.
0: Yeah, I remember listening to the former chief people officer for Lululemon speak at a conference. And she was saying that she had started out as a junior level person within their HR department. And they put all of their people through an annual goal setting exercise. And one of her goals was to study internationally to get her MBA. And studying internationally to get your MBA does not line up well with sitting in your local office doing your day job. And so she put it on there and her boss said, great, how do we make this happen? And she wound up moving from Toronto, which is where they're headquartered, to uh, Scotland for two years, got her MBA, they actually kept her on, on a very part-time basis, just doing some additional HR work, got her MBA. And when she came back, they gave her a, a much higher role than she had before, because they had, they had helped her achieve her dream. So she was fit. She felt loyal to them. And then they had stayed in touch with her and were able to get her back in with that additional skill set. And then the other part of that, that I found really interesting was that I guess they have a, they did at the time, I don't know if they still do, but they had a Showcase essentially of everybody who used to work at the company who went on to found another company. And they would bring all of the company's merchandise or services or whatever in and basically do a big trade show. And you could go around and sample it and everything. And so it was a way for them to drum up business and a way to celebrate all the people who had gone on to do amazing things. And I just, I remember sitting there being like, wow, this is so different than the way that most companies are doing this.
1: Yeah. And just to build on that quickly, I'm just reminded of if you look at like a McKinsey, what i find fascinating about them is you know they are looking for people with a certain pat you know a certain passion or a certain commitment to that work and that are really good at it but what's interesting is when you come in and if you're not a fit they don't make you feel like as you're leaving that you're a loser they don't make you feel like oh you, you screwed up you didn't get to the next level they were they actually help you find the next thing right they're actually helping you find where can your talents and your skills actually be better a better fit for you. Right. And that actually, I mean, there's, there's a business side of that because then those folks will come back and hopefully hire McKinsey. But it's a, if, if more companies thought about it that way, I think it would have a very different experience for their employees.
0: Yeah. It's not about you not being able to cut it with the cool kids. It's just right. about you not being aligned. Right.
1: That's a very different way to think about your life. And, and then it is the way that we were brought up which is if you didn't make it, it's because there's something wrong with you.
0: Yeah. So I had another guest on here who is a psychotherapist, practicing psychotherapist, and we talked a lot about shame and about looking at the parts of yourself that you're ashamed of and reframing how you look at those to realize that those parts actually are trying to serve you. They've, they either just don't serve you anymore, or you've, suppress them for so long that they are just screaming and shouting and causing all kinds of issues for you. And so if you just acknowledge that those parts actually are there to serve you, you can live with them and go on to be very successful. And and that shame calms down. And it's interesting that we're talking about this again which is kind of the same thing. It's it's the story you tell about yourself. Oh, I'm not successful. I'm not good enough. Is often the story we tell when something doesn't work out, rather than oh, this really this wasn't for me. Sometimes you do have to be honest and say, I you know I didn't give it my best effort, or I don't have the skill set, and I need to go out and learn. And and you can be. We talk in in a leadership group that I'm in at work. We talk about being very hard on self without being down on self. And I think that's kind of what you've articulated.
1: But you know, just to piggyback on that, O'Brien, just. It, think about what if what if your HR departments, what if you're what what if that's what you were solving for? What if you that was part of what you were trying to build within your company? Was to help people have those realizations, to help people feel aligned. Right. Because what we do know is I remember at Exxon, we'd always be like, How many people would I need if everybody was an A player? Right. And it was probably like a third of the number of people we had. You know, like I think there is a business side of this as well that says, When you have people that are aligned, you're probably getting a heck of a lot more out of them in a way that is satisfactory to both of you, right? But we don't really build that. I don't know if we have the the capacities and the tools today for an HR department to do
0: that. It seems like that's kind of the old Henry Ford assembly line mentality is, right? Like we just want people who are going to come in and work harder. We don't care anything else other than like, can you work harder and make more widgets on the assembly line? Right. But as we shift into a different type of work, it just, it doesn't work anymore.
1: Right. And I think, I think the way that we've organized ourselves is still very much driven by that FW Taylor industrial engineering mindset. And I think there's an opportunity for companies that are going to be really competitively different. If they can figure that out
0: and helping the employees align, I think it's going to give them a competitive advantage in the long run. Yeah, I would I would agree. Want to tie back to something Samir said about, you know, you don't have to leave. You don't need a new job. How do you help somebody rethink about their existing job or tell themselves a different story about the job they're doing or maybe modify it in a little way to get a big hit of passion from something that they've been doing sort of dispassionately for maybe a couple of years?
2: Well, I'd say there's a couple of things. There are, there are plenty of behavioral tests out there that are actually fairly affordable that can tell you quite a bit about what really inspired an individual. And often when you see this lack of passion, there's a couple of things going on. One is maybe the work doesn't fit who they are as an individual, right? I would be awful, for example like sitting in a cube writing code because I'd spend most of my time looking like a Dilbert cartoon, looking over at the next person, asking what they are doing. There's also, and I'm I'm thinking more from a leadership perspective, is I have had plenty of experiences of thinking my head of marketing should do the job like this. And anything that's not like this is some version of not as good, wrong at the extreme end, et cetera. And, and part of the other part of, of this whole relationship is if the individual on the other side of the table can contribute as much to here's how I would do this job in a way that is fully aligned with who I am as, an, as a person, then that's a fairly easy way, if that works, to, to get that kind of hit that you want. But it requires you as, an, as a leader, for example, to say, yeah, okay, I know I've, I'm used to this happening this way. And let's really have a conversation about, we still have to get to the same objective. The results aren't going to change out of this. But if there's a way that really feels far more aligned with how you do it, what can we do to kind of make that happen as well?
1: Yeah, I would add then that I think many times that I've seen for myself and other people is there are a set of skills or things that you're good at that you take for granted or you don't even recognize that those are things you're good at that can also be applied elsewhere. Right? So even one of the early com- one of the conversations Samir and I were having over the last few months was I'm like, what am I good at you know And like and, and I just asked him, like what do you think? And he's like, well, I think you're really good at networking people. You're really good at helping idea you know people sort of reframe ideas You really help you know there were a few things and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm good at those things, right But that's in no job description. That doesn't show up in it you know but by identifying what those things were, then I can say, okay, well, where could I take those and have them be part of my day-to-day work where I'm doing those more frequently, right? So part of this is also just, I think a lot of times we become so conditioned with, you know, like if you look at the responsibilities table on a job description, you start, you start thinking about that's what I'm good at, right? But there are a whole bunch of other things that you're really good at. That Sometimes we don't think about, and if you can identify what those are, and I find a lot of times, it's just asking people you know, or something like Samir was saying earlier, just, nat- just identify where do you naturally spend your time? What are you spending your time doing, right? Then you might say, oh, that's what I'm really good at. Then that might begin to say, oh, now where can I, what role in the company, might that be a place where I could apply that? Right, so maybe for me, and I'm not saying this was the case, maybe for me at Exelon, a better place may have been, you know, some type of external relationships, you know, versus managing and operating a division, because then I'm building networks and I'm building trust and social capital, and I'm helping us, you know, explain our mission to different stakeholder groups. So I think a lot of times we don't even recognize what we're what we're good at, and I think spending time understanding that will I think reveal different opportunities versus hey i'm really good
0: at finance. Well and one comment that i'll add there because it's a mistake that i've made an embarrassing number of times and still make an embarrassing number of times is that i i'll think about this in my head alone and think that i've figured it out that i know the answer and it's just so wrong because every time i pull out a piece of paper and then write that answer down it's something else it's just <laughs> it's not the way that I think about it in my head. And so everything that you've been talking about here today is all really good exercises for people to go through. I've got a couple of questions for myself to journal about here. It's all great stuff, but I, I just can't encourage listeners enough to actually put pen to paper and write this stuff down. And it's good to ask other people, like you said, but then write down their answers. I like collect all of this so you can look at it and say, is that really right? Is that really how I feel? And you can look at it more objectively when it's written down on paper versus this sort of arbitrary idea that you have in your head.
2: Yeah. And, and O'Brien, the other thing that I hear there is it is not, for example, necessarily my boss's job, or if I'm the boss, my job to see how happy, at, at the end of the day, the person that's responsible for my happiness is really me. Ideally, my the person that i report to is a coach and is is there to support me and help me facilitate the dreams i'm i'm creating and want to create for myself so that idea of taking the responsibility and going i'm going to create what i want out of the world is an important one
0: fantastic so can i add
1: one other quick yes yeah, absolutely just an analogy i've been playing with in my head and it may fall flat and if you do just cut it out of the, the show but you know I've shared this with Samir, and he, he, he didn't get excited about it, so I'm guessing it's not particularly good. But I, I think to a certain degree, you know, careers have been built in the old, using a software analogy, in the old way of waterfall projects, right? You'd say, oh, I'm going to go build this piece of software. Or I'm going to go implement this. piece. It's a two-year, a two-year thing, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, you get to it, everybody's like, I hate this. Whatever you just put into my system, I hate it. And we've sort of built careers the same way, which is, oh, go to college for four years, then go to grad school and get a job, blah, blah, blah. And after 15, 20 years, nirvana will be there, right? That'll be, then you'll be where you're supposed to be. And as you've heard with both Samir and my story, a lot of times people get there and they're like, this isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what I wanted. But if you start thinking about your career from a more agile software perspective, that really you're the, you know, what you're trying to do is actually. you're you're, you're putting a minimally viable product out there that is you, right? And then through your career and experiences, you just keep iterating on that and you improve that piece of software. If you think about it that way, then you're taking the feedback loop and you're constantly iterating on it in a way that you just said, O'Brien, because in a way, the software is that written statement. It is that this is what it is. And then what you're doing is you're continuously iterating on it. But until you write it down, it doesn't exist. So, if you write it down and say, this is who I am, and then you're taking feedback and you're iterating on it like you would with agile software, you actually discover things that could be, you know, and you begin to see these patterns that you were talking about earlier that say, oh, that's a pattern I want to build in now to the product because it's come up enough of the time. So, I started thinking about careers, you know, in that sort of analogy.
0: Uh, that lands with me. I, I like that. And I think about my own life that way and just experimenting and trying different things and, and iterating and iterating. And most of the things that I try will fall off. I'll learn something from them. So I'll be, I'll have better perspective, but they won't stick for the long term. But every once in a while you get that one thing, that's just a jewel that really lights you up. And then that thing becomes part of you. And now you're a better product, right? You're a better iteration of yourself. So yeah, that, that lands with me.
2: What I like about that also is both of you are looking at, you are taking a look at things as iterations, not success failures. So you're not looking at the thing that didn't work out and going, oh, I'm done. You're looking at going, great. What is the learning I can pull from that? And now what's the next version of me? What's 2.0? What's 2.1? And I think that's something that a lot of us can get stuck in pretty easily.
0: That's a great point. I have one more question if you guys have the time. And this is one that I've asked most of the guests. And it's one I meant to ask you guys earlier, but we just got rolling and had a great conversation here. But with everything that we've talked about, about lining you up to be successful, I'm curious your take on what is the purpose of business?
1: I don't know. that. I, I don't know if I've got an answer to that. You know, um, I think what what I do... So I don't know I'll just say that flat out. I think what's exciting about this moment and this period we're in, there's an opportunity to reflect on what it could be, you know, and having grown up coming kind of undergrad at University of Chicago, having gone to Booth, you know, having been sort of uh, fed the propaganda of Milton Friedman and, you know, maximizing shareholder value, you know, I think that there's elements of that that are true. But I think what's exciting about this, this time is to start saying, are there other purposes of business? Are there other things that it could be doing besides maximizing shareholder value? I don't have an answer as to what that is. I think the most important thing we can all be doing is embracing the question and, and going back to the idea of iterating is iterating on what that could be. You know, is there a way that business can be like we're talking about? One of its purposes is to help people find their ikigai. Could that be one of the purposes of business is to help you become more aligned as an employee, which might mean you leave. Right. I think that's a pretty exciting place to be. I think that's a pretty exciting time. And I think that businesses who embrace the journey of defining a different purpose may end up having different value propositions beyond just to investors and you know maximizing value. So I don't have an answer that I don't think there is one. I think what's what's cool is that we're actually. Asking the question. And I think in the question, there are tons of opportunities.
2: What I I probably would shift it just a little bit. I think what you've heard from us today is really this idea of instead of what is the purpose of business, we've focused a lot more on what is your purpose in business? Because that's really where we see this working. I I think of this almost, I think of business um, as almost being the playing field or the court. It is a place for each of us as individuals to continue to to move out and get to that version of ourselves that is continuously iterating. So I think it's less about what's there and more about what is it that we can do when we are there and when we are playing there.
0: I think those are both good answers, including your non-answer, Sonny. I, I think that was <laughs> I think that's a great way to think about it. And I've asked this question now to close to 20 people and Everybody has had a little bit of a different answer and it's stumped a lot of people, but it's really interesting just to see what everybody comes up with to that question, because I think it's it's one, just like the questions we've been talking about are not questions a lot of people are asking themselves. I, I think that's a question that we're not really asking a lot. It's like, what what's the purpose of all this? And so it's it's great to get your perspectives on that.
1: Oh, well, Brian, if I, could, if I can recommend a book, there's a book called Transaction Man that Nicholas Lemon wrote recently. And it just talks about the history of the corporation. I think what's interesting about it as you go through it is the corporation is a pretty new concept. You know, it's 100 plus years old. It, you know, it sort of came out of this trust in corporations. So what business is, is still a relatively new question for us that we're dealing with. And so to think we have an answer on that, it's, you know, we've seen political systems evolve over time, right? And, and what is the, you know, and came up with democracy right? And representative government, I think it's, it's, if we embrace it as something that we still don't know, it's an, it's a, it's a
0: new concept, but let's engage with it. That gets pretty fun for me. That's so interesting to think about that, as, to think about business as a new concept or to think about the corporation as a new concept. I mean, that's the furthest thing from how I've thought about business, right? You see titans of, enterprise talking about their businesses and and growth and shareholder value and all that. And you don't realize like, oh, no, this is just a phase of this experiment that we're in. And really, it's only been around for a, a short period of time. Gentlemen, this has been insightful for me, and I can't wait to share this with others. I really appreciate you two taking the time and uh, wish you all the best on your own personal journeys.
2: Thanks, O'Brien. It's been great to be here. Yeah,
0: thanks, O'Brien. Really enjoyed it. I learned a lot too. Thank you. Hey, folks! One last thing before you go: if you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.